Um, We are in a sermon series on the book of Acts, so I would ask you to turn there to Acts chapter 1, or you can read on the screen behind me, or uh, you can get there on your phone, but we're going to be looking at a passage there today. Uh, Last week, uh, we looked at the first part of Acts chapter 1, where Luke, who's the author of Acts, um, chronicles for us the ascension of Jesus. And when we talk about Jesus ascending, what we're talking about is the event where after Jesus had given final instructions to his disciples after his resurrection, he literally lifted off the ground into the clouds uh, to his place of authority and power in heaven. Now, all throughout this series, we're going to be saying that the main person in the story of the book of Acts is not Peter or Paul or even the Christian church, not even the group of believers uh, that we're going to see do ministry and pray together in the book of Acts. The main person in the story is Jesus himself, which means we said last week that Luke has to answer an important question before we go any further in the story, and it's where is Jesus now? If Jesus is the main character of the story, then where is he now? And he answers that question by letting us know that Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. That is, he is in a place of power and authority. And that means that week by week, church, when we gather together like this, we don't come together uh, to hear some inspirational words about a dead martyr, right? We needed to be far more than just inspired to be better people, right? You can turn to Facebook memes to get inspired to be better people, or it might just make you angry, one or the other, right? Um, That's not why we gather together. We gather together because we have deep needs that need satisfied, and the only person who can meet those needs for forgiveness, for acceptance, for security, for significance, the only person who can meet those needs is alive, He is still head of the church. He is in a place of position, in a place of position and power and authority to meet us. And so what we do together week by week is a waste of time unless we realize that we're not just memorializing a martyr, right? We're encountering a living person. And that's why he uh, is still in charge of the church, still in charge of the story. Now, before Jesus went back to his position in heaven of authority and power, he gave his disciples some instructions before he left them. Uh, He said in Acts 1 verse 4, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 8 of chapter 1, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus' instruction to his disciples after he ascends is that they go to Jerusalem and that they wait there. And as we're going to see, the way the early disciples of Jesus interpreted his instruction, they interpreted it correctly, was to go to Jerusalem and to be in prayer together until they received the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. So there they gathered in Jerusalem and waited for the Spirit to be poured out. By the way, next week is Pentecost Sunday, 
when Christians all around the world will be celebrating that the gift was given. Jesus said to wait for the gift of the Spirit, and that gift was given. We're going to read about that and celebrate that next week together. Now, today, we're going to read about the disciples dealing with a leadership issue while they're waiting in prayer for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. And this is going to tell us something about the way that God puts us beside people in life and in ministry. So very often we stand just to express our honor of God's word. If you'd stand to your feet, I'm going to begin reading in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go to where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. You may take your seat. Let me just walk you through some of the details of this passage, and then we'll bring it to some application for us as individuals and as a church. Um, in following Jesus' instructions, uh, the disciples go back to Jerusalem, and there they gather in an upper room, probably uh, a room that was the um, upper part of a house. It may have been a room that they had met in previously that they were familiar with, but wherever it was, we're not sure the exact location, they meet there, and they begin to pray together. And Luke gives us a picture of who was present for these prayer meetings over these days that they gathered together. Um, the 11 remaining disciples, if you remember, Jesus had many disciples who followed him, but there were 12 who were especially close to him. One of them betrayed him, which this passage references, but the remaining 11 gathered together in prayer. But we also know there were about 120 believers that were present, pressing in in prayer, waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and that those disciples included women as well, because Luke already made this clear in his gospel 
um, in the first volume, remember Luke and Acts are written together, that Jesus had not only male disciples, but female disciples as well. And so those disciples also joined together in prayer. And this is setting the stage for the prophecy that was spoken of in the Old Testament to come true when not just men, but men and women would receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so Luke is clear to include uh, the women disciples who were gathered there in prayer. And we see a pattern begin to develop in the book of Acts where God's people, when they pray together, uh, the Spirit moves and does only what the Holy Spirit can do. Prayer often precedes filling in the book of Acts. This is what Jesus had spoken about in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 8, the verses that we already read about. See, we've been saying through this whole series that Jesus is the main character, he's the main person fulfilling the purposes of God from his ascended and exalted place. But Jesus in the book of Acts has chosen a method by which to fulfill his purposes, and there's no question in the book of Acts that that method is prayer. It's Jesus who's doing it. It's Jesus who accomplishes his purposes, but he accomplishes his purposes through his people primarily through prayer. And very often in the book of Acts, when God's people get together to pray, there is an expectation, not just that God is going to do something in the far future, but he's going to do something in the meeting in which they're gathering. That the Spirit is going to respond um, in power in these times of prayer. And that's certainly what we're going to be talking about next week in Acts chapter 2. Um, Peter, at some point during this gathering, stands up and begins to address those who have gathered and he mentions that they've lost one of the 12, Judas, because Judas betrayed Jesus and then eventually took his own life. But notice Peter's language in Acts chapter 1. Um, it would have been incredibly shameful for the disciples uh, to have this as part of the story, that one of their own, that one of their own that they had traveled with, that they had been with, that they had been friends with, betrayed their leader, Jesus, and yet... In spite of all that shame and hardship, Peter sees that somehow, even in that, even in that hardship, God's purposes were at work. That ultimately God was behind this. That God was still fulfilling his purposes. And this is going to be a theme all the way through the book of Acts. Even when there's hardship, even when there's difficulty, it's God who is at work in the details. And none of that hardship or difficulty or suffering is going to derail the plans of God as he accomplishes his purpose on the earth. Peter then references two psalms in the Old Testament um, to uh, explain the situation that they find themselves in and needing a new leader. He quotes out of Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Those are two psalms that have to do with the enemies of God meeting their end and what they have being taken away from them. So Peter sees in these Old Testament psalms evidence of how God works in situations such as this um, after they have lost Judas in leadership. And it's interesting, Peter is interested in replacing Judas's position in leadership because as you remember, Jesus had many disciples, but there were 12 that he called to be in a special place of influence and leadership and proximity to his ministry while he ministered on earth. And that number 12 is very symbolic. It has a lot of meaning. 
in the Old Testament. If you remember, there were 12 tribes in ancient Israel that together made up the people of God in ancient Israel. And so there's a lot of meaning to this, but when Jesus chose 12 apostles, there was a symbolic statement that the Holy Spirit was working as the kingdom of God came to establish a new family of God on earth, just like the family of Israel had been established on earth. Now, it's not a completely new family. This new family that God was establishing has its connection and roots in the old family. Nonetheless, God was doing a new thing. So as God's people gather to pray, it's important to Peter and the early disciples that there's 12 leaders in place so that this symbolism is in place as they prepare for the Holy Spirit to be poured out onto them. And Peter says that the qualification for whoever this is that's going to replace Judas, this person needs to be an eyewitness. This is also going to be a theme all the way through the book of Acts, is that there are eyewitnesses who were alive, who saw with their own eyes Jesus physically die and physically be resurrected. For the early disciples, it's not just enough to talk about Jesus as a theory, Jesus as a mystical, spiritual reality, Jesus' teachings as influential. They talk about Jesus as a physical, historical person who physically, historically died and was physically, historically raised to life again. And it's important to them that there are eyewitnesses in place in leadership who can attest to this fact. And then they don't just pick whoever they want, they pray. You're going to see this pattern all the way through the book of Acts. They turn to God and they pray and they say, God, you alone know people's hearts. So they're not just looking at appearances. They're not just looking at you know, what they think is best in this position. They ask God, who alone knows the hearts of these two men, Joseph, Joseph and Matthias, who out of the two of them should fill this position. And then they do something kind of odd, but it's meaningful in this passage. They cast lots. This was a way to kind of randomly make decisions that was common in the ancient world. And we're not exactly sure how they did it, but a really common way to cast lots in the ancient world was to take two pebbles, so maybe they took a stone that uh, represented Matthias and a stone that represented Joseph, and to put them into some kind of container, a jar or a pot, and to shake it, and then to pour it out slowly, and the first stone that dropped was the person that God had chosen. Doesn't that seem odd? That's not how we make decisions here at Crestmont Alliance Church. Um, It seems kind of random, and it's interesting, we don't see this form of decision-making anymore in the book of Acts past this first chapter in Acts. And the reason for that is because after Pentecost, after the early believers get the Holy Spirit and they're filled, they have gifts that allow them uh, to understand what God is wanting to do. And so we still see them discerning the will of God, but doing it in prayer by gifts of the Holy Spirit. But this is before Pentecost, and this is the method that they choose is to cast lots. Now, here's the interesting thing about this method of choosing Matthias. It actually fits very well with a theme in the book of Acts that God is in charge of everything from beginning to end in the story. And even though it seems like this is random, even though it looks like it's random that a stone falls out first, if that's how they did it, Uh, The message that's being sent is that God is involved even in those details too. 
This is going to be a theme all the way through. That God is involved in the background, unseen details, even when it seems random, even when it seems like the mission is experiencing a setback. God is still involved in those details as well. The early believers are so confident that God is at work, that Jesus is still in charge of his church. They're so confident that God is still fulfilling his purposes that they can cast lots and assume that God is at work somehow in that as well. All right, So that's how they choose to do it. Now, as we look at this passage, there's often four questions here at Crestmont that we'll ask um, to bring this passage to application to our lives. And the first is, who is God? Well, one thing that comes very, through very clear here in this passage is that even though Jesus is physically absent, from his risen, ascended place, he is still the chooser. He is still the one choosing where people belong on the team. He's still the one deciding who's in leadership. He's still the one deciding who's going to work together in the different parts of the mission. And we're going to see this moving forward all the way through the book of Acts, that Jesus is very actively involved in particularly choosing people and placing them in specific places on the mission. This isn't random, and it's not by accident. Even when lots are used, and that looks random, still it's not random. Jesus is the one who's choosing where people go, where they belong on the mission. And so what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we are both called and assigned by him. Now, if you've been with us for a little bit, you know that we like to use both of these words to talk about the ways in which uh, Jesus engages us on the mission. First of all, we are called. This has to do with our identity. If Our calling has to do with who we will forever be for all of eternity because of what Jesus has called us, right? And we talk a lot about identity here at Crestmont. That's our calling. But Jesus doesn't just give calling. He also gives assignments. Assignments come from him too. Assignments are temporary. We won't carry them into eternity. But they are nonetheless from him. For instance... All of the issues of identity that we talk about here at Crestmont in terms of calling, that we are forgiven, that we are loved, that we are accepted, affirmed because of the cross of Jesus, those things are connected to my identity for all of eternity, right? But I have an assignment right now, and it's to be lead pastor here at Crestmont Lions Church. But you see, that's not my identity. It's just assignment. It's from the Lord. It's important. But it's temporary, I hope to be doing this for a long time, but I won't be doing it for all of eternity, right? This is an assignment that God has given me. Both come from Jesus, and both need to be discerned by his church and by us as individuals. Everybody in this room, if you're in Jesus, you have both calling and assignment, and we see these dynamics playing out in Acts chapter 1. So what might God be saying to us in a passage like this? Well, first of all, if we're talking about calling an assignment and Jesus being in charge and Jesus being the one who chooses, then we should ask a question. How is it that we hear what he wants? Do we cast lots? How is it that we should expect that Jesus is going to speak to us, not just as individuals, but us as a church, about calling and assignment. 
Well, we see a pattern develop in Acts chapter 1, and it's this, that God speaks to us both by His Word and by His Spirit. God speaks to us both by His Word and by His Spirit. Notice what happens when Peter stands up and the early believers begin to work through this issue of who's going to replace Judas. The first thing Peter does is he turns to the Old Testament. He turns to the book of Psalms. Everything they do is rooted in the ancient revealed word of God. And he turns to two Psalms that do apply to the situation that they are seeking to deal with. They see a pattern. They see a way that God works in Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And so they turn to the word of God. But then they expect that God is going to respond to their prayer in the moment. That he's going to do something in the moment to direct them and lead them and guide them. And whatever the Spirit is going to do in the moment to lead and direct and guide them is going to be in accordance with his word, right? Because the Holy Spirit is who breathed the word, right, into existence. And so what we see is a word and spirit culture develop in this early church. A culture that is committed to the Word of God, knows the Word of God, turns to the Word first to find direction, to find God's heart, to find God's will, but it is also dependent on the Holy Spirit in the moment to provide specific application so they know next steps to take. And so we get a phrase that is familiar to some of you, that if a church is only a word culture and not a spirit culture, we dry up, right? Because all that happens is we learn principles from the word, but we're not sure how to apply them specifically in the mission that God has called us to. What is God doing now, right? But if we have a spirit culture and not a word culture, we blow up, right? Because things get weird really quick, right? When we don't take the word of God seriously, right? People are prophesying things, saying things, right? And how many of you know the Holy Spirit will never contradict the Word of God? Amen? He will never contradict His Word. So if we have a spirit culture without the Word, we blow up, right? But if we have a Word and spirit culture, then we grow up. This is how God intended it to be. We turn to the Word together. We discern what He's saying. And we expect that the Spirit will guide us in response to our prayers in the moment. So this is part of how God speaks all the way through the book of Acts. And in this case, in chapter 1, we see this um, secondly, that God will place us with whom He wants in ministry. Right? Um, Jesus didn't you know, look at the early church in the situation and say, well, whatever you guys want, you know, (laughs) Matthias or Joseph, you just decide whatever you want to do. He was involved in the intimate details of deciding who was going to be on this ministry team of the 12 apostles. You know, it has been a great joy in my life to find that the deeper I get involved in kingdom ministry, the deeper I get involved in the mission, that God is involved in the specific details of placing us beside the people that he wants us to be beside in assignment. It's amazing to see it. And there's all kinds of joy when God begins to do that. Because you see, it used to be 
that my friendships were primarily about affinity with another person. You know what I mean? Like a, a commonness. It might be uh, common interests or common personality or common life experience or shared history. Those were the things that helped me decide who my friends were, right? But the more we get on the mission and the more we submit and allow Jesus to choose where we are assigned, we find ourselves to be friends with people who we would never be friends with otherwise. And they are real friendships. These are the people that we laugh with, we cry with, we suffer with, we celebrate with, and we become increasingly aware that I would never have picked this person to be my friend in the natural, right? But here I am praying with them. Here I am serving with them. Here I am suffering with them. Here I am weeping with them. Here I am celebrating with them because God has put me next to them. I put some of this on Facebook last night. I started to get some feedback like, Joel, you should say this in your sermon. No, they didn't go like that. But someone did post this quote from C.S. Lewis and it was so perfect. And um, here I was thinking I had original thoughts and C.S. Lewis already thought of all of this. So uh, I want you to hear this quote. C.S. Lewis says this. In friendship, we think we have chosen our peers. In reality, a few years difference in the dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at a first meeting, any of these chances, casting lots, right, might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, ye have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discriminating and good taste in finding one another out. It is the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of others. Which brings me to the third point I want to make here that when Jesus is chooser and we're getting our assignments from him, it means that kingdom relationships become increasingly determined by the mission. Jesus has a mission in mind. He, better than anybody, knows the hearts of all of us in the room, knows our gifts, knows our histories, knows our cultural backgrounds, knows what we bring to the table, and he knows the mixes that need to be created on ministry teams so that his mission can be fulfilled and completed. He alone knows the best. Who each of us are and where we fit in the thing that God is doing among us. And here's a joy in this, that as our relationships become defined, not just by who likes who, but become defined by the mission, um, there is... Uh, something that happens in friendships that's very liberating because we begin to be freed from some of the pettiness that can sometimes define our friendships, even in the church. Um, because it's not about who's with who. It's not about who got invited where. It's about what the kingdom of God is doing. It's about what Jesus is accomplishing. And I can assure all of you friends, everybody has a place in this thing, right? So what might God be saying to us? Well, I think this, that if he's the chooser, 
that if we are assigned, that if God speaks to us about those assignments and our mission and the relation, our relationships begin to be defined by the mission, then I think this is the application we can take from this whole um, thing about Matthias being chosen by the early disciples to replace Judas, that we can keep choosing each other. Why can we keep choosing each other? Well, we can keep choosing each other because he chose us. See, just as I close here, let me share with you some things that just might be helpful for you in navigating relationships. First of all, if we wait for others to choose to roll with us, we'll be disappointed. I meet so many Christians who are waiting for people to choose them, who are waiting for people to notice their gifts, who are waiting for people to celebrate their personality or their accomplishments, who are waiting to get an invite, who are waiting to be included in a ministry or in a social event. But I can tell you, friends, if, if that is our disposition towards relationships, if we are waiting to be picked, if we are waiting to be chosen, you will be disappointed. And, and the reason is, is because very many times we're waiting for other people to do this because we want them to include us in the ways that make us feel included, but other people don't even know what makes us feel included and what doesn't. We're expecting people to read our minds, right? And there's only one person who can read our minds, and he's God. And this is why this always leaves us disappointed, is because we put expectations on people that only God can fill. Let me tell you something very liberating this morning. God has chosen you. You are picked. <laughs> you are chosen. If you're in the family, it's only because you got picked. If you're in the family, it's only because God chose you. I just see us, Lewis just quoted it. We didn't choose him. He chose us. And that means that we can approach relationships out of that space, knowing we are picked and chosen already. I'm an insider already. Whether people treat me like it or not doesn't mean it's not true, right? Because people will let us down. People will overlook us. We won't get an invite when we should have gotten an invite, right? All of those things will happen, but if I know I'm picked, if I know I'm chosen, then nothing can take that security and confidence away from me. But on the other side of that coin is this, if we, choose, if we choose who we will roll with, we'll often choose based on appearances. Sometimes we get so tired of being left out, we decide to take things into our own hands and just pick ourselves, right? But this is exactly the mistake that the early disciples avoid. They don't pick just for themselves, and in their prayer, they say, God, you don't pick on appearances. You know the heart, and we want the person with the right heart we know both of these men are qualified. We know both of these men would be great in this position. But we want to know who you are choosing. Jesus, we want to know who you are assigning. And see, if we take things into our own hands and just begin to choose on our own, we will always be drawn to external things. Why? Because subconsciously, it's like we can't even help it, we pick, we choose friends and ministry partners and churches based on how we can get our own needs met, right? 
And then that creates a very sad situation because it means people are useful to us so long as they are meeting our needs. Friends are useful to us so long as they're meeting our needs. Churches are useful to us so long as they are meeting our needs. And I've said this before, but you all know, there are people out there who are bottomless chasms of need that no amount of person, no friendship is ever going to be able to fill, right? Because they're looking for something that they're never going to find in another person. But it's amazing when you let God assign you with people and you let people be assigned to you on ministry teams, um, it's amazing the people that God will put next to you. I mean, people with different cultural backgrounds, people of different ages, people of different political persuasions. Um, It has been my great joy to be in ministry with all of those different kinds of people in the last few years. With people that who I probably would never have linked up with that way. But I can tell you, friends, when we begin to link up that way, it's such a testimony to what Jesus is doing among us. Because if we resist the temptation to wait to be picked, and if we resist the temptation to pick ourselves, then we see this, that if God chooses who we roll with, we'll keep choosing each other because he chose us. Right? See, if I know that the person at my right and my left, the person that God has put me in ministry with, on mission with right now, for this season, and remember, assignment is temporary. You're going to see a lot of movement in the book of Acts. People who are together for a particular assignment, it's not necessarily that they're together the rest of their lives, right? There's an assignment that God has for them, but he does want them to stick together while they're in that assignment with each other. If I know that the person to my right and my left is not just there by accident, is not just there because I need them to fill some need of mine, is not just there because when I'm close to them, I feel better about myself because I feel included. If I know that Jesus has put this person next to me and that he chose me and he chose them for this particular assignment, then it means I can keep choosing them too even when it gets difficult because guess what, friends? It will. One of my favorite things as a pastor uh, is seeing God do this among relationships. Um, you know, I have a, somewhat of a unique vantage point in the life of the church, right? Because um, my ministry touches pretty much every corner of the church, right? I know what's happening in the life of the church. Now, my position probably also has some blind spots, right? But from where I serve, I'm able to see a lot. I kind of have a bird's eye view. And one of my favorite things to see and I can see it very many times before you can see it, all right, is when God picks one person over here and one person over there, and I can tell he's going to put them on the same team for an assignment. And because I know this person and I know this person before they ever know each other, I think, oh boy, here we go. Because <laughs> these people are nothing like each other, all right? These people are going to irritate each other. These people are going to have trouble understanding each other. But I can see that God is choosing them for the same team. God is putting them on the same team. And then this is one of my greatest joys as a pastor, is when those two people come into the realization that they're on the same team, not because of some accident, not because 
they just bumped into each other, not because they both just got asked to do the same thing in the church, but when they realized that they are, got assigned to where they're assigned because Jesus was behind it. And I see two people who love Jesus more than their own pain or preference, who love Jesus more than what they would pick, who prefer the will of Jesus over their own will. And they decide, you know what? We're going to choose each other because Jesus chose us. And it's contrary to how it feels at first, but our deepest friendships in the church will actually come out of the scenario that I just described. Because it expands our capacity to love. It expands our capacity to forgive. Anthony, you can start playing. It expands our capacity to stick with one another, and it adds a depth to our mission that wasn't there, right? Um, it adds a depth to our relationships that wasn't there before. You know, Jesus said, he prayed, that we would love one another in such a way that the world would know that he was sent from the Father. This whole theme of being an eyewitness is so important in the book of Acts. For, you know, it's so important to Peter that before the Holy Spirit was poured out in the church, that the leadership positions were filled with people who had been physical eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. He knew that was a good foundation off of which the church could be built. It's a foundation which we are still on today. But today, not one of us in this room is a physical eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. But let me tell you something that gets pretty close. It's when two people who are nothing like each other choose each other through the pain, through the offense, when they choose each other because they have this deep sense that Jesus has chosen them and that at least for this period of time, Jesus has put them on the same team together. Now, I want to be clear. I, I said it earlier. Assignments don't last forever. A loyalty is a virtue, to be sure, but I don't have to tell you that there's a lot of pastors who cling and hold on to their people because for their people to leave would be an affront to their identity, right? To their sense of acceptance or significance. Um, and that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about a loyalty, not to a church or even to a friendship. I'm talking about a loyalty to Jesus that says, no matter how long you've attended Crestmont or how long you've been in ministry or how long you've been doing the same thing with the same people that says, not my will, but your will be done. And so I understand that in the kingdom, there's movement. Friendships change. Assignments change. Um, not only will I not be pastor of this church forever, you will not attend Crestmont Alliance Church for all eternity, right? Assignments change. But here's what I think the challenge is for all of us, is to allow the change in assignment to come from the mouth and the heart of Jesus who chose us and helps us to choose each other, even when it hurts. Because otherwise, the temptation is to run. I've been tempted to run so many times when conflict comes up, when irritation comes up. It's so much easier just to disregard each other. But as long as Jesus has us on assignment together, we want to be together on that assignment. Amen? All right. If you'd stand to your feet. Jenny's going to close in just a moment, but I want to pray over you.
Um, yeah, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you and we bless your presence among us. We thank you that you choose. You chose Matthias for this task. You choose us for the assignments and tasks that you have placed us on. And we thank you for that. And just this morning as I was praying, I was thinking about how sometimes we glue things and we blow on the glue so it will dry faster. <laughs> and Lord, I just want to pray that by your spirit, you'd blow on the glue this morning. Lord, in our hearts, help us to choose the people that you've put to our left and to our right for this season. However long that season is, and that's up to you. But Lord, help us to choose. And where it's hard, where it feels like we're not quite fitting together, we're not sure we can forgive this person, or we're not sure we understand each other, it just feels like we're so different, how could we serve in ministry together? Lord, I just pray that today you'd blow on the glue of those relationships. Just reassure us that you choose, that you chose us, you chose them, and so we can choose each other. In Jesus' name.